Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Previously on the Mike Wise Show. You know, growing up here in San Diego, I thought the world was perfect. Yep. And we we, we had uh, incredible lives and opportunity, and you know everybody was going, and we he were likes all high school zone. We were all in it together, and I got to UCLA, and it was even better there, and and then on and on, and then I, you know, I get to the NBA, and I was uh, I was shocked. I was shocked about a lot of different things, but one of the things that totally blew me away was uh, two of my best friends on the team, Lionel Hollins and Lenny Wilkins, the challenges that they were having with the fans. That was Bill Walton from last week's Mike Wise Show discussing some of the challenges his African-American teammates faced in Portland back in the 1970s. Sadly, as we know, some of those same problems persist today. Bill joins us this week for part two of our conversation, and we'll examine some of the relationships that have enriched his life as well as some of the hurdles he's had to overcome. But first, Darlene, do your thing. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Thank you, Darlene. The NBA plans on resuming play on July 31st at the Disney Wide World of Sports Complex in Orlando, Florida. While some have questioned the wisdom of resuming the season at all, Bill feels the people making the decisions are guided by a well-calibrated moral compass. Your thoughts on resuming play in the Orlando Disney bubble um, do, do you like it? Do you have any concerns? Um, I think there, some players are worried that there's going to be, you know, a tone deafness there, that they're sort of in this bubble and the world's still in chaos outside. And they, they want to make sure that that uh, society is <laughs> somewhat normal before they go back to work. Um, but others are feeling like this is part of our job and we can provide a good distraction. Your thoughts? I trust the NBA to have the best interests of the players at heart. And I've known Adam Silver for uh, most of his professional life. I'm uh, significantly older than Adam is. And, uh, and his management team is superb. And their willingness to encourage conversation, to encourage transparency, to yeah. encourage different voices, that is all good. And I think you're agreeing. Understand that the NBA, it is hard to imagine a better platform in the world than the NBA. And to to have a platform is critical. And the more money that is generated in life, the more good things we can do about it or or, or good things we can do about the world and the, the opportunity to always make that positive difference. And so with the doctors and with the scientists, we have to leave these decisions and these judgment calls as to how we're going to do it, what we're going to do, up to the people who really know something. And I am the first to admit that I don't know anything about anything. I don't think quickly on my feet. 
even when I'm sitting down. <laughs> I, I, I have no memory. And other than that, uh, you know, everything is fine in my life. But th when they want my opinion, they're going to give it to me. These guys are going to, these are the sharpest business minds that we have in the world. And, and, and the players are super smart. The players are involved. And I, I like the fact that they're speaking up and voicing their opinions. Don't wait till it's all said and done. Get out there in front now and say, hey, wait a second, what's the deal? And these are all just discussion points as to how the NBA, how we as a community, how we as a world, as a society can make things better. And the way that and that ESPN, the way that your show, the way that all these, the way that the New York Times and comes out with these absolutely tremendous stories all the time so that we can then take a moment, listen to the other side, and then try mm -hmm. to find a better way forward for all of us there. And that's, it, it, that's mm -hmm. why, I mean, I go to the NBA.com site every single day on their Together page because all the different things that they do, you know, they talk, they talk about all the aspects of what is going on out there and, and and we have to understand that there is a cause for the challenges that we have right now you know and, and too often we just treat symptoms we just try to put a band-aid on it we just try to, uh, to take this medicine take this pill go home put some ice on it whatever i i like addressing the cause of our problems and that inevitably that comes back to inequalities inequality yeah. in almost everything and when we can work on that then we then we have a real chance to eliminate these symptoms yeah uh, police brutality the profiling the weaponization and then the, the 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 lack of housing opportunities the lack of jobs and 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 and, and, and just the the lack of kindness in the world oh, Good, that's the thing civility like bring back civility darn it you know, when we are when we are constantly faced with you know cowardice and corruption, divisiveness, betrayal, yeah. hypocrisy, denial, anger, hatred, that is that is not the road I choose to take. When I was coming back from my spine surgery, this was in '09, so now yeah. I was 11. Years this old. was this your last surgery, by the way, because no. people, people that don't know you don't know that you had 38 operations most on I've had your... 38 orthopedic operations and some yeah. of them worked some of them worked including um, but think about that 38 times <laughs> under the under the knife or uh, or, or in the hospital under the anesthetic, under the anesthetic. I mean, yeah it's under the anesthetic and so it, anyway i'm doing fine now you know I, both my ankles are fused from the knee down it's all yeah. one bone but i still have my legs i still have my feet yeah. My hands and wrists don't work, but I still have them. I've got a replaced knee, and I've got a, a rebuilt, reconstructed, redesigned uh, new spine, and so it's just fantastic. When when I was going through that, it, it was the hardest thing ever, and I didn't think yeah. I was going to make it. I, it was just too hard, and uh, and I was faced, you know, when you have these questions of perseverance, and you know, what does it take to to keep going, and. I, I've learned over the course of my life that when you come to these incredibly challenging moments, you know, you, you can always quit. Mm -hmm. You can always just say, I'm not going to do this. I don't yeah. want to do this. But I always encourage people to, to when they're at that moment and, you know, ask yourself, are you going to quit 
because it's too hard or you're going to quit because you just don't like it. Yeah. And if you don't like the job, you don't like the work you're doing, if you don't like your situation, then it, you know then it's okay to quit and go in a different direction. But if you're going to quit because it's too hard, everything is hard. The minute you find something that's easy, will you please tell me what it is? And so here I was, here I was at this incredibly challenging time, and I, I was going to kill myself. I had I had lost yeah, all, I, I had all self respect, and it, it was it, it was really 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 hard. Hardest thing I've ever you done. you you basically gave up. You had to give up your announcing career for three years. You went into a deep depression. I remember yeah. my friend Sean Powell writing a great profile of you when he was with Sports on Earth, and you talked about your debilitating back con- condition and. I mean, were you at a point where you were on the floor and you, you'd sort of gotten an idea how you were going to do this? Take yourself yeah, I was out? I'll jump off a bridge. I was going to jump off a bridge. I, you know, I don't, I'm not a gun guy. I mean, okay. the, fact that, the fact that we have 400 million guns in our country does not help any of us. Right. And you were going to so, jump what bridge? You were going to jump off a bridge? I was looking for the right one okay. to make sure it was high enough and the ground underneath it was hard enough. Jeez. But, but that's, fr- that's uh, frightening. But uh, I, I was fortunately, you know, and when you're in that space, and, and I mm. know people who have committed suicide before, and it's, it's a terrible, terrible thing, and it's the wrong thing to do. But when you're in that space, and when it's you, you, you think that's the clear way forward. But I had lost, you know, w- when you're really sick like that, then you just have you have no comprehension of of reality or mm-hmm. of what's really going on. And, and don't ever make your decisions when you're down. <laughs> Wait till you get back up and turn Good the music on. So, so I've gone through this whole thing here. And and when I was when I was really down and deep mm. and it was really, really dark and black and there was no hope, Neil Young released it his album fork in the road and then shortly after that this was in april of 2009 shortly after that bob dylan released together through life and so i had these two friends who were encouraging me they didn't know just cool they didn't know it but but i would just i would play the whole cd one and then i would switch the cds actually i had to have Lori switch the cd because i couldn't function well enough to even do that and then I would just go back and forth, and it just the songs were perfect. And now that we're down and out again, this is 11 years later, and Bob Dylan's coming out again, man, and it's with <laughs> rough and rowdy ways. And so you're man, you're not I, down and out though. You're good. No, no, but the world is down and out. You're right. And the, the world Bob is Bob Dylan right now. But it, it, and his nine questions from blowing in the wind, how many times, how, what does mm-hmm. it take? All the different things that Bob asked back in 1962 when he wrote blowing in the wind, how, uh, how appropriate all that stuff is today. Mm-hmm. And that's the importance of music. And, you know, you know, the, my hobbies in life, you know, books, music, uh, listening to music, playing music, attending music, reading books, working in the garden, being with fam- my family, the Lori and the children and the grandchildren, and then h- helping the other people. And then uh, all the different things that I love to do. And just the ability mm-hmm. to do that, though, is a, is a privilege that comes from the health, the health that we have, the physical health, the mental mm-hmm. health, and the, you know, the ability 
to get going and what you learn over the course of time is just nothing in my life is ever easy. Nothing is ever guaranteed. And so my concept is one of the things that I try to do is I try to do everything I can to make it, to make it better in everything I do. When, as as I've gotten older, I'm now 67. As I've gotten older, that concept of everything has expanded exponentially. And I, I used to think, you know, that the easiest part of my life was when I was a basketball player. And as your life goes on and the challenges get harder and harder, and they do, you, you have to be able to adapt, to reinvent, and to keep moving forward, to develop new skills and new talents. And, and mm-hmm. learning, learning how to speak is my greatest accomplishment in life. And my ability to, to to be able to verbalize some of the things that I think about now, I can. Yeah, people forget. Do, people forget that you had a stuttering it. problem at one point. People people I don't know that do a lot of people. I cannot do it. I'm not responsible. I don't. I don't know what other people don't know. I yeah. know what I know, and I know what I don't know, and I don't know a lot. But when I look at the broadcasting influences in my lives. When I look at Chick Hearn, who was the first one that I really found and, and, and gleaned onto, then, uh, and then uh, all the singers and the songwriters and, and, and what they did, and then to be able to work and, and, and at the professional level during the course of my career to work with so many of the most remarkable public speakers and then get to know so many of the incredible and phenomenal writers of books and writers of newspaper columns and everything and to be able to learn from them and then to, to see the guys at the top of their profession today uh, the guys like mike greenberg at espn and what he is able to do to see what mike Tarico is able to do as a broadcaster and to be able to have a thought and to be able to transmit that thought in words instantaneously flawlessly and literally they are talking faster and more concisely and more accurately than I ever ever able to think. Yeah. And it's just it's such a it's such an inspiration to be able to see people at their best, doing their best, and that's why we have to keep the challenge, keep the push all the time. I, I remember the great coaches and teachers and leaders that I've been uh, able to learn from, and they would set. They would set these goals for everybody on the team, in the group, in of the company. John Wood, right? And, and, and then every time we would start to bump up against the goal and think like we were getting there, they would just move the goal out further and just challenge us more. One of those teachers who challenged and guided Walton was the great Hall of Fame coach at UCLA, John Wooden. When they were together back in the early 1970s, Bill's counterculture views were frequently at odds with those of his legendary coach. As the undisputed leader of college basketball's greatest dynasty, Wooden was demanding and sometimes stingy with positive reinforcement, even for his future Hall of Fame center. We tried with everything we had to get him to acknowledge that we were doing something right. And the most we ever got, most ever, was maybe a twinkle in his eye or maybe he turned one side of his mouth, the lip of his mouth up and a little bit of a half a smile. But then as soon as, as soon as he caught himself beaming and uh, glowing in, you know, in the golden light of what we were doing, then he would just say, okay, that's okay. Yeah. 
now let's do it again, but do it faster, do it faster, <laughs> do it faster. And I've seen it once, that means I never want it to go below this level of execution mm. and perfection again the rest of your lives. And he was, uh, he was, uh, <laughs> I, I was, I was so lucky to, yeah. to, to have 43 years of my life with him. I, I had oh, no idea. Yeah, I had your no relationship idea with him was a great no story. Idea that I had the first seven years of those 43 years, but, and then over the last 36 years, which were by far the most interesting, once I stopped playing for him, when well, he I, became, when he became your friend, uh, or, or I don't know. I don't know if he was my friend, but I was his. Friend. <laughs> well, I think he he always called you William, and I love that. And I still go back to that time you drove, you bicycled into practice and told them you you decided to assert your independence and said you were going to have facial hair. Tell people I love that story because it says everything about the times, but also about what kind of man Coach Wooden was. I argued with him about everything. You name the subject, I argued with him, <laughs> and he would sit there and he would listen. And I've got this beautiful black and white artist rendition of, uh, in, in pencil of Coach Wooden in, in my gym here at the home garage. And this, Lori and I have lived here for 41 years now. This is my dream. Coach Wooden has been here, and Bill Russell and Kareem and Jerry and all, a lot of guys have been here. Most importantly, Lori's still here. She came back. And so the. Mike Wise hasn't been there, but that's okay. Don't worry. So you haven't been here? Has Bruce, Not I yet. Think Bruce has been here. Has Bruce Bernstein been here? Bruce, how, 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 how's Nancy and Mitchell doing? They doing okay? Nan hey, Bill. Uh, Nancy, Nancy and Mitchell are doing great. Uh, Mitchell's engaged. He's going to be getting married in uh, May of 2021. His wedding had to be postponed. Um, yeah, congratulations. Way to go, Dan. And his, uh, and his little brother, Adam, is working for the NBA. Yep. So, uh, oh, nice. Nice. Went uh, into the family business. Yep. No, we're great. Yep. And I have been in your house. And I remember being in your house in 2011, right? And John and John Walsh's daughter and her husband were there the same day. And your Emily. Chef, and your chef prepared an amazing feast for us. And your house is truly like a hall of fame. It was uh, it's a national yeah. treasure. Yeah. It's a hall of fame because you were here. Uh -huh. and so anyway, I would have all these. Thank you, Bruce, for the update there. And uh, we <laughs> sure. have a son working. For, we have a son <laughs> Phil just takes over the podcast. Yeah, and and, and so. We have this uh, uh, relationship where I argued with Wooden about everything, yep. and he would he would listen, and he would he loved to hold his his index finger over his pursed closed lips, and uh, parsed lips, excuse me, and he <laughs> would uh, he would listen like uh, like the librarian, uh, where you were trying to explain why you were making so much noise in his library, right? And so <laughs> anyway, he would finally have enough of my whining and complaining and excuses. And he would just roll his eyes and wave his hand and say, you know, Bill, it's all fine and good that you think this way, but I'm the coach here. And while we've enjoyed having you, we're going to miss you. And as soon as he said that, and he said it quite often, that uh, I knew I had lost. I never changed his mind. I never, <laughs> I, I, I never got him to see things my way, but um, I, I, I never stopped trying. <laughs> and, no. and, and, and I, I would give him music. I would, you know, I gave him uh, for his, you know, so my, my spine surgery was in February 8th of 09. And he, he died on June 4th, I believe of 2010. Mm -hmm. And so, and so when, when I had worn out my copies of Fork in the Road and Together Through Life, I, I bought some more 
and I gave it to him. Now, I'm not sure if he listened to it. I'm not even sure if he had a CD player. I'm not even sure if the listeners of today's program know what CDs are. But <laughs> we're, we're going through life here, and uh, I, I have learned so much, and I can't wait. Because, you know, as we talked about uh, JFK today, uh, when Bob Dylan released uh, early on in the pandemic, COVID-19, he released uh, uh, Murder Most Foul, which is, uh, I'm told from the Rolling Stone article that that's the closing closing song on the album. And I I, I remember, too, when Bob Dylan first came out with uh, like a Rolling Stone, and and he turned it in. And his record label, which I believe is Columbia, and uh, he, the record label said, this is too long. And Bob said, no, no, it's not. It's just fine. <laughs> and He could so, do that. Right. Well, he, I, I'm not sure he, he did it. He did yeah. it and it worked. But, but that's, that's one of the things that, that you have to learn is, is that you, you have to make the attempt. And to just say, well, we're going to wait and let this all play out. I mean, that is a huge yeah. mistake. Everybody has to be involved. I'm so proud of LeBron and, and, and for Jalen Rose and all the yep. different guys who are initiating the voter drive and the, uh, the, the activation of being an engaged citizen and yep. being involved in everything. And, and, and that is critical. A hundred million people chose not to vote in the 2016 presidential election in an election that was decided by 70,000 votes, please. Read, yeah. read these truths. Yeah, read, no, this... Read, read Zuck, read Dark Money, read Believer, yeah. read It Can't Happen Here, Yeah. read The Children. Do you know what Mike Tirico and Mike Greenberg don't have on you? They never introduced Bob Dylan to Kevin McHale. I still <laughs> think that's a great story. Well, well, that was a great day. We were in, on tour with Dylan and the Dead in the late 80s. What, what happens when you get old is you remember what happened and where it happened and who was there, but you can't remember when. <laughs> you can't and, remember you know, when. <laughs> so, you know, it could have been last week. It could have been 25 <laughs> years ago. I don't know. You know, I I, I got on, onto the national stage when I was about 15 years old. And so yeah. that was, uh, it, it, it's been a, a long, strange trip. I'm the luckiest guy in the world. And I, I, I'm hopefully, 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 I am better today than I was yesterday, and hopefully, I'll be even better tomorrow. But we were out there on tour, and we pulled into Minneapolis uh, with uh, with, the, with Bob and Jerry and the whole band and everything. A big, big, big show, big stadium shows. You know, they played. Hmm. I, I, I don't know. They played in uh, Oakland, Anaheim, and they played in Foxborough, and they played in RFK. And uh, and they, they definitely played in Minnesota because uh, mm-hmm. I was at all these shows, and, and and there were probably a couple more. But anyway, we pulled in and called up Kevin. Said, "Let's go, man! Come on!" He said, "Oh, well, what are we doing? Where are we going?" I said, "We're going to a concert here." <laughs> and so we were backstage and having a really fun time, and uh, everybody had a good laugh, particularly when uh, Bob realized that Kevin and he were from the same hometown, Hibbing, Minnesota. Kevin, Minnesota. As I always invited uh, John Wooden to come with me on a lot of different trips, uh, Kevin always invited me to come to Hibbing, and I, I never made it. I, I, I'm sad to say I never still made time. it. Um, well, the, I'm just getting started out here. <laughs> How does it feel to be on your own? 
Bob Dylan and the late NBA commissioner, David Stern, were born 16 months apart in the early 1940s. When I interviewed David in October 2019, he told me who he believed was the greatest player of all time. And as you'll hear, Bill and David were pretty much on the same page. Everyone says to me, well, what do you think, LeBron or Michael? And I say, Bill Russell. <laughs> he has 11 rings, and one of those guys has six, and one has five. You tell me. Bill Russell was my favorite player. Mm-hmm. That's who I, you know, I fell in love with Bill Russell through Chick Hearn on the radio. And I, I never even saw him. We didn't have a TV. Then my mom brought home his book, Go Up for Glory. She said, oh, Billy, this just came into the library. I thought you might be interested in it. It's, it's about that thing you call basketball. Because my parents <laughs> have zero interest in sports. So I read this book and I just, this is 1964, and just fell in love. And then Chick Hearn, just every, even if the Celtics weren't playing the Lakers, Bill, Bill Russell came up every day. And then when, we, uh, when I finally started watching basketball on television in 1965, and I said, oh my gosh. And then, uh, but then Wilt, and then Kareem, Oscar, and then Larry, and Magic, and Michael, and, and and LeBron, I mean, what LeBron, you know, yeah. you, you can't, I don't really talk about the guys who are still currently playing, but sure. this, this guy, LeBron is doing fantastic and what he's been able to do to be able to sustain over time. And I, you know, I, I work so much now that I don't get the chance to watch a ton of basketball. I mean, I, I watch yeah. as much as I can, but I had a rare time in front of a television just before the pandemic closed everything down and Milwaukee played at, Staples Center against the Lakers, and it was head-to-head Giannis and LeBron, and LeBron at 35 was just in absolute control of everything, and it was just a thing of beauty to watch because, you know, he he is very, very special uh, on and off the court, and uh, he's always there. He's always a stand-up guy, and and he's, you know, he he, he is really, really good, but uh, Kareem was the best I ever played against. Okay. Larry, the best I ever played with. And then Maurice Lucas was the greatest teammate I ever had. When the Blazers won the NBA title in 1977, Bill was the alpha dog, but his most important teammate was power forward Maurice Lucas. In the late 1970s and most of the 1980s, Luke was the one player in the league that nobody, and I mean nobody, ever messed with. If you're wondering how close Bill was with Maurice Lucas, Bill's son Luke, the former Laker and current coach in Sacramento, is named after him. Here's the story of the final time Bill visited with Maurice Lucas before he died of cancer 10 years ago. We were up visiting him. We had flown up to see him because it was not going well. And he, he couldn't even get out of his bed. And so Pam and Lori and I, and there, there was maybe a per- person. I, I think my brother Bruce was there with this too. And, and finally, we were waiting, waiting, just talking, and Maurice was not coming out, not coming out. And, and finally, he comes out from the bedroom, and he... You know, he just looked awful, and he was, you know, in a in a bathrobe, but he had lost all his weight, all his skin color, and his hair had all turned white, and he had a beard and everything. And I looked at him, and I said, "Man, Maurice, you look just like Bill Russell." And Maurice looked back at me, and he snarled, and he said, "That's the worst thing anybody's ever said to me." And leave it to anyway, Bill. Yeah. And, and, and so, and so, when we got the phone call on October thirty first, two thousand and ten, we were at the house here, 
and celebrating our oldest son, Adam, and our youngest son, Chris's birthday. They're both born on the same day, Halloween, October 31st, mm-hmm. uh, six years apart. And and so we're having this birthday, family birthday party, and Luke's playing on the Lakers at the time, and the phone rings. And I pick it up, and it's Luke. Mm-hmm. And it's we're having a birthday party celebrating live, and Luke is very serious. He says, hey, Dad. I'm in the Laker locker room right now, and I just got the word that Maurice has passed away. And so it just totally changed everything for us, and we were all so sad, and the birthday party kind of, oh, my gosh, Maurice is dead, and now he's gone. Uh, but then the very the very night, that very night, Christopher, the youngest, his wife, Gina, carrying the first grandchild in our family, she goes into labor, and by the morning, we had a brand-new baby. And so it was uh, from the devastation and depths of despair and the disruption of losing Maurice Lucas. We had a brand new baby, and I tried with everything I had I had to convince Chris and Gina Walton to name that new baby Luke, but they weren't having anything to do with it. And so they named her Olivia. After Bill, Maurice, and the great late Dr. Jack Ramsey led the Blazers to the 1977 title. Bill won the Most Valuable Player Award the following season, despite missing 24 regular season games. But it was the start of eight seasons that were marred by injuries, including three complete seasons when Bill didn't play at all. He played in 67 of 82 games in 1984 and 85, and then he was traded to the Celtics for Cedric Maxwell after Red Auerbach received Larry Bird's blessing. Bill would go on to win the Sixth Man of the Year Award and was the final piece on a team that won 67 regular season games and lost only once at home all season, the 1986 Boston Celtics. I look at that team as the the greatest ever. Your thoughts? I've been lucky. I've okay. been lucky to be to be on three of the greatest teams ever, and yeah. and, and that doesn't even count Helix High School or my elementary school team. And so UCLA. The UCLA the Lasers, Lasers, who would have been a dynasty without injuries, I believe, and then. Uh, and the Celtic team, like it, like any great team, uh, we could win in any number of ways. Yeah. We could win any type of game against any opponent. And we, we had everything. And while we can talk about the brilliance of Robert Parrish, the chief, just fantastic. We can talk about the dynamic contributions of Dennis Johnson and Danny Ainge and the incredible bench of Scott Wedman and Rick Carlisle and Jerry Seasting and Greg Kite yeah. and David Birdkill and Sam Vincent. At the end of the day, we had Larry Bird, we had Kevin McHale, we had Red Auerbach, and nobody else did. Mm. And we were, it was super fun. You were sixth man of the year that year. I just, that means I told Larry and Kevin what the schedule was. And I didn't really have to come to Kevin too much because uh, (laughs) Larry, that guy, he delivered. He was just Uh absolutely. Brilliant. And I forgot to mention our coach, uh, Casey Jones, who was classically oh. brilliant in every way. And we loved Casey Jones and what he was able to do for us. It was just absolutely spectacular. You can yeah. empty the thesaurus uh, on, on Casey Jones. He's just absolutely oh, one of those remarkable human beings and forces of nature. 
and uh, and to learn about Casey Jones and to to know his story and to know what he did and become. I mean, it, it's just absolutely uh, inspirational and wonderful. And I'm the luckiest guy in the world. The 1986 Celtics were the third and final championship team of the Larry Bird era in Boston. It was also Bill's final productive season as a player. But the following season, despite more injury problems, Bill was still on the team and was on the playoff roster when Bird made one of the greatest and most clutch defensive plays in Celtics history. Here's how legendary Celtics play-by-play man Johnny Most described it. And now there's a steal by Bird. Underneath the DJ The people still remember your reaction on the bench, the TV cameras caught uh, during the 87 playoffs when uh, in game or was it five, uh, Larry steals the pass, throw, falling out of bounds, throws it to DJ, he scores. You're, what was you, what were you thinking in that moment? I just remember you looking and like, oh my gosh, you, you, you're in disbelief, but, but you, I don't know, what, what were you thinking in that moment? I was thinking the poor Detroit Pistons, they have no idea how good Larry Bird is. <laughs> That's good. Because, because you, whenever there's true brilliance, you know, it, it's one thing to be yeah. brilliant in a highlight film, but when you're brilliant all the time and the radiant glory of Larry Bird on a constant basis, that guy, you, you, when you see someone, every single day able to deliver and to bring it and to carry the burden and to ease the pain and to and to be that leader to be the guy who who accepts the responsibility and, uh, and addresses everything on a constant basis that was larry bird and i was just super lucky to be able to be on the team super lucky to be a witness to some of the greatest accomplishments mm-hmm. in the history of the world that was dope <laughs> Yes, Darlene, that was dope and lit. <laughs> Thanks to Bill Walton for being so generous with his time and words of wisdom. Any conversation with Bill always touches on the past, but at age 67, he's always looking toward the future. He's an American treasure whose dedication to a more just and inclusive society is one of the many reasons we admire him so much. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. Thank you, Bruce Bernstein, for helping me craft and present this very special two-part podcast. Thanks also to our talented editor, Ben Wolfen, for his great work at the audio controls. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops media shows. Full Court Press with Fanton Adams releases a new show each Tuesday. A brand new Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Otto Strong and Aaron Berlin drops each Wednesday. And Bucket Sports and Blocks with Monica McNutt has a new show every Thursday And the Pure Hoops podcast, of course, with B.J. Armstrong and Eric Newman, that comes out Friday. Please rate and review all of our shows. Five stars if you like us. One if you really don't. No, don't even review us then. Please continue wearing your masks as we fight this COVID-19 virus off and pray for all the medical professionals and frontline workers. I'll be back next Monday with a new Mike Wise show. Till then, treat everyone around you with respect. We'll see you next week. Peace. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise-Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.
Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. Not one based on the driver who treats the highway like a racetrack and the shoulder like a passing lane. Why pay a rate based on anyone else? Get one based on you with DriveWise from Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions. Rates are determined by several factors, which vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for purposes of rating. While in some states, your rate could increase with high-risk driving. Generally, safer drivers will save with DriveWise. Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates, Northbrook, Illinois.